Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome to the Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we're super thrilled to have you back for another week. And uh, yeah, this week uh, we are going to be, uh, we're going to be moseying out into the great yonder, past the plains and into the old west. Uh, but but we're going to go to the old west indie style and not Indiana Jones like... <laughs> No, not indie Indiana Jones style. We're gonna go indie, uh, uh, just regular old like independent, independent westerns. Um, yeah, but but uh, but first, before we get to that, how you doing, Ryan? How are things? Pretty good. Yeah, you. Uh, so, is that kind of what you've been watching this week? Is some of these uh, independent westerns? Haven't watched these for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did watch. <laughs> I won't tell you which one. See if you can tell from the content <laughs> of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did watch one of them <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and I and I had the thought then. Oh, you know, we did our postmodern we- uh, Western episode, which we're mm-hmm. very proud of. One of our least popular episodes ever. What it's could we do episode, that would be though. even less popular to the listening <laughs> populace? Is, was mm-hmm. my thought. Let's do less mainstream and uh, less blockbuster westerns that nobody has seen. And there's a bit of redundancy here because several – these are all fairly recent, I guess. I don't know what's recent for me and recent for you. The idea was to do the indie westerns of the sort of of the streaming era from 2006, 2007 to present – we're going to do them in reverse order just to make it as confusing as possible. And, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of these, and I see I typically see all of them. I, I get that Westerns aren't everybody's thing. They really are a thing that some people – it's a whole genre some people completely avoid regardless right. of their content, regardless of whether they have a star they like, regardless of whether, you know, there may be an interesting story there. So this mm-hmm. – this isn't trying to to convert any of you to loving westerns, but we can at least talk a little bit about why we like them, why I like the the ones on these li- this list in particular, and maybe give you a chance to see something different because there's something magical about westerns to me, to people who love them, and I don't love. Yeah. We talked to Chris uh, 
Fitchett, you know, a couple of weeks ago on the Ausploitation episode, and he said, you know, all these directors of my generation, they all grew up watching American Westerns, and that American Western feel, or spaghetti Westerns or whatever, they all grew up watching these their sort of classic 50s and 60s Westerns. Um, and these uh, aren't that. They really don't have that Jimmy Stewart, uh, John Wayne sort of Western feel to them at all. They they're yeah. all they all look at they they all I shouldn't it's not have all they're not all this way, but they, largely they're these are darker, more serious stories of isolation of of the real emotional and societal impact of lawlessness, um, and corruption mm-hmm. and stuff. And it, it, it to me they're. Even though there's a couple, there's an Aussie Western here. There's a New Zealand Western. You know, there's a, there are other ones. There are potato famine, Irish Westerns. That really would call those Westerns at this point. Um, so yeah. they're not uniquely American stories, but there's, you know, to me, there's something about them that is that era is we we. We still, as as a as a country, as a society, are still very much paying for the sins of that era, you know. And that, to me, is interesting. Um, what they say in Unforgiven deserves got nothing to do with it. You know, that's a great yeah. line, in and out of context. But deserve, and I don't want to say karma because I don't really believe in that. But that idea that the things that you do, even even if you're part of a culture, even things you didn't do, that those those things, those actions, that follows through and becomes a part of what you are. And I think that that's an era that a lot of the things that happened are a part of what we are as a country even today. So I think there's relevance there. And I think you look back, um, and it's also what do I say in the very first episode? You know, I like to be transported. Western's a whole different reality, man. It's a whole yeah. different thing. It's like the Roman Empire or outer space or whatever. It's it's a whole – it takes you – literally they take you away to another world and Hollywood still likes them even though Hollywood does not love them at all. It still likes them because you can make these films, these little Hollywood ghost towns and things – these places still exist. The guns are still in mm-hmm. storage. The costumes are, like, you know, it's all there ready for you to tell one. And all you got to do to do it is, you know, raise some money, but have a, have your own unique spin on the genre. And yeah. these filmmakers have tried to do that. So. Yeah. Hmm. I think, you know, classic, classic Westerns, uh, you know, tended and spaghetti Westerns, you know, as, as gunfighting violent and sometimes as they were, but it's still romanticized. Mm-hmm. It romanticized an era where, you know, good was good, bad was bad. And the, and the, you know, and yeah, the spaghetti we- Western sort of changed that where everybody yeah. was bad. That was yeah. the step they took away from the classic Western. But I agree with you, but there that- was still, there was still a romance element to it. It was big yes. sweeping. Visit. It was all, you know, and I think, yeah, yeah a lot there of are adventure the tales really. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The mission movies Western. and, the yeah. modern Western really just sort of turns it on its head. Turns it on its head. It, 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 it you know, there's it, it sort of subverts the romanticism a, a bit. I, I, I think that it, um, 
it also really embraces the gray areas uh you know it's yeah. no longer you know hero in a in a white hat and the villain in the black hat it's right. you know it's, and yet they also embrace the good old like there's things you got to have the good old shootout you know the revenge tale what is it the the setups are very similar so they owe yeah. a lot to the to the classic westerns but I agree with you. They tend to be more substantive, and that's what draws me into them. Some of them, we'll talk about them, are downright unpleasant. Sure. Uh, it's not really a countdown, so you won't hear the countdown thing. This is just sort of a list, like I said, starting with the most recent ones, because we, I think we've talked about them a little, some of these, in our end-of-the-year mm -hmm. episodes and stuff. These, these have come up before, a few of them. Some of them never have, and this is a chance for us to sort of clear the decks without, you know without ranking them that's a little tricky because they you know, are what I'm, you know what i'm calling it you know mm. what i'm calling it i'm calling it the indie western roundup uh so yeah so let's jump in let's get to it uh first one up the roundup is, <laughs> the roundup uh is uh the kid uh, we talked about this uh, 2016 year interview. Uh, uh, no, this was 2019. 19 year interview. Yeah, that makes sense because yeah. we weren't doing this in 2016. That's true. Um, <laughs> it sometimes feels like we were doing. We've been doing it for that long, but it feels yeah. like this show has started back in 2016. <laughs> this very episode. <laughs> this very episode. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I started boy. singing along with the producers back in 2016. Back in those days, you didn't have everybody looking for gold. It was just me <laughs> and Ellie. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you think that's funny. That's my old prospector voice. That's I one do of the, like your. I like old prospector voice. He's funnier, I think, when he's commenting on mo the modern problems of today's society <laughs> because of so, the incongruity. So it's so more like. I can't get my external hard drive to talk to my computer. Oh, I'm going to turn feather that. When will my health care provider call me about my inoculation? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Anyway. <laughs> the kid is funny. There's a few movies here that they all are based around... Um, Billy the Kid? No, this movie is based around Billy the Kid, but it's more than that. It, they're, uh, they're based around this crew of people that were all doing the same movies at the same time. Most notably, they all came together mm -hmm. to make uh, Fuqua's um, remake of The Magnificent Seven yes. yeah, with yeah. Denzel Washington and and uh, Ethan Hawke and, and Chris uh, Pratt. Mm -hmm. This film and Vincent D'Onofrio. This film was directed by Vincent D'Onofrio, and his whole family is in it, like all his kids and his sister and his wife, and like everybody's did something on it. So it's got that Vincent finally got to make his own movie kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, but it has several people from from Magnificent Seven. It was made right after Magnificent Seven, which is weird um because it because to you know one big hollywood western a magnificent seven won't be on this list that was that's the closest thing we've had to a big blockbuster modern blockbuster western in recent memory and that film's uh, it's it, i actually think it's pretty fantastic for what it is so we've yeah. kind of already given that the the old seal of approval if you want to mm -hmm. that'll yeah. go right there <laughs> 
<laughs> just checking. The seal of yeah. approval is new to me, everybody. Bear with no, us. Well, yeah, we... I, the seal of approval will only appear. I don't have a sounder for the seal of approval. I get it. It'll appear uh, later. In real time. In real I time. Understand. It'll appear later. Why everyone's watching this going, we just saw it. What are you guys talking about? Yeah, what are you doing? No. Uh, it's a little behind the scenes for you. It's anyway, awesome. Magnificent Seven came out. It was it cost a ton of money. It had a bunch of stars in it, and it didn't do very well financially. So it just shows that people don't dig Westerns. I mean, some people do. It didn't embarrassingly There's... tank at the box office either mm -hmm. but it just it, they, they can't make a more crowd-pleasing star-laden western than that you just yeah. i don't know how you do it uh and maybe you shouldn't do it westerns maybe shouldn't be big giant blockbusters anymore maybe they should be these smaller movies vincent's film the kid makes a case that it can be really great when it is it's the story of pat garrett and billy the kid which is a you know that old classic uh, Western legend about the time that the that uh, the bounty hunter captured Billy and had him in custody for a while, and the the title has a double meaning. It's about a kid who is it's experience. The whole movie's experienced through the eyes of this child. Uh, Chris Pratt plays a bad guy in it. He plays a really mean son of a bitch in it, and he he was. That's why he agreed to do it. He said. Vincent's probably the only guy in Hollywood who will cast me as this psycho. He yeah. goes, at this point, you know, I have to play the wisecracking hero. And while that's, I, I, I'm ideally suited to that sort of work. He just, I heard his interview with it where he's like, I don't, Hollywood producers, don't stop sending me your wisecracking hero scripts or whatever. Right. <laughs> but I, he said it was like a fun paychecks. I like the paychecks that I'm getting. Exactly. Paycheck. Living the dream, he calls it, yeah. which it, it must be for him. Um, yeah. But he he's great in it in that way. It's He's a little, sadly, he's a little wise, a bit of a wisecracky psycho, but whatever. But the real joy of that film is good old Ethan Hawke and a rather kind of stoic, man of little words, Western hero that we're so used to. He's great as Pat Garrett. And Dane DeHaan was born to play Billy the Kid. He is fantastic in the film. You know, we've seen Brad Pitt play Jesse James, and we've seen big stars play these legends. And and the appeal of that is that is that I think Brad Pitt has some sense, and I think Johnny Depp, same, playing Dillinger. Like, I think they have this sense of what it's like to be a celebrity of that era in a way that we mm -hmm. kind of can't relate to. And it's the legend, the story that's built up about around you, the hype that's built up around you, even though you're just this person, like I, there's a connection there. And yeah. Dane, I don't know, he's not like some huge star. He's been in plenty of hit movies, but he's an interesting actor when he's allowed to do interesting things. When you try and box him into a conventional Mm -hmm. role he feels like a sort of trapped animal there's a sort of hard to watch him in a yeah. in a classically heroic role in a way that a guy like pratt just slips into that easily but he's fantastic as billy the kid because he's out of his mind and you just you have no idea what he's going to do from moment to moment he's 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 burdened by kind of awful things he's done he's he's really complex but there's a psychological aspect to him he's kind of messed up and beyond help and reckless and ruthless in a way that people should become really in yeah. life and so he's the wild card element of the story like he should be and it, it's sort of perfect match of actor and and 
and uh, character, and and then you know you have this other pretty you know anytime an actor co-writes and directs a film, you get you typically get really really good acting. You you get it just a lot. That's the part that that guy can make sure works in mm-hmm. every take. You know what I mean? Even if he misses out on some other things. Uh, getting the performances down so that everybody in the room is happy with what they've done before moving on to the next thing. That's that's a perfect thing for an actor-director to accomplish, and D'Onofrio does a good job with that. Yeah. Um, but it, I thought The Kid was fantastic, I, and I still do. It's a really, really good one. It's kind of the most recent one on this list. Um, it's not the deepest or most thematically rich, but it a lot of it rings really really true and for a subtle western i i super dug it and the kid and his mom like seeing it from seeing this crazy story play out from these these conventional point of view is is also very powerful it was a smart way to make that in my opinion very cool all right uh, next up is the sisters brothers yeah we talked about this in the yeah. same episode actually the same year interview so we won't talk about this too much but again a couple of big spars this is john c Riley read this novel and he bought the rights to it and this is it's not the same as d'onofrio he didn't direct it and it's not a john c Riley production written by john c Riley. like it's not that kind of thing but he he you know he just wanted to be in it because he thought it was a cool story and it's him and Joaquin Phoenix play these brothers whose last name is Sisters. That's the that's the, that's the, the play joke. on the title. That's exactly the titular haha. And they're outlaws, gunfighters for hire, what have you. And um and and the other big star that's in it is Jake Gyllenhaal, who's great in it. Who's a, a bounty hunter who's hunting down this dude that the sisters brothers get hooked up with played by Riz Ahmed who's this kind of educated sciencey guy who has found a new way to pan for gold and it's it, it's the way we look for gold today actually chemically mm-hmm. we look for it yeah. and he's figured it out you know, I'm not sure before really anyone I think in history did I think that's a bit of a MacGuffin but doing it it's dangerous. There's really dangerous chemicals and stuff that he's using. Um, but it works. So they get all wound up together. And then the two teams of bounty hunters, you know, it's like a series of misadventures. There's a ton of humor in it. Joaquin and, and Riley are very believable brothers, even though they're playing entirely different kind of guys, that chemistry and that history comes to life and screen. And if you stick around long enough in that one, you get to see Carol Kane as their mother, yeah, uh, which is fantastic. It, 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 the movie, the movie, is bittersweet in a lot of ways. But the, one of the things that's great about it is that it does, for all the awful things that happen, it does sort of end in this wonderful place. And you can't say that about many of these. So, I really like Sisters Brothers. That was a, I mean. It's on this list because not a lot of people have heard of it. Hardly anyone's seen it. But that was about a $50 million, you know, with some real acting talent. That was a big... Mm-hmm. $38 million yeah. budget. And it brought in, it brought in 13 a Yeah, so, 13. It, so it's a very little scene, but actually a very lavish film mm-hmm. that's worth your time. 
Um, just if you like any of those people, you know, Gyllenhaal is great and everything pretty much. I, mean, I can't think of the last time I saw him in something where I was like, oh, you stink, Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Pretty much every these days, whenever I see him, I'm like, it's, I've gone from, oh, he he's a good one to I just I'm happy. I'm excited to see it just because he's just doing it like he yeah. has graduated to that level for me. And, you know, Joaquin's hit or miss, but, but kind of like Dane DeHaan, Joaquin, he's a unique guy, and you just never know mm-hmm. what you're going to get. But with a guy like him, sometimes you get rather off-the-hook incredibleness. And and Riley, who's used to being the clown, has to be a little bit of the straight man in this. And I, I, that's it's great to see him being a person and not just a whatever. Sure. Not just a sidekick or, you know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, or, you know, I mean, he does broad comedy and sketch comedy as good as anybody. So I love John C. Riley, but it's fun. He, he's a, he's a proper actor and it's fun watching him play an actual person. It's, that's it's even fun watching him in Kong Skull Island. Right. But um, that's the role I'm talking about. He's a yeah. crazy man for crazy for these reasons. And everything that comes out of his mouth is weird and funny. I mean, that's fun, but that's right. not, that guy's not a person. At all. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nobody I mean, well, in Kong's Skull Island is a person. Well, I just mean that he's, but I'm. I, I what I mean is that he's he's not playing broad. I mean, in Kong Skull Island, I don't I don't want to want this to go down a Kong Skull Island. He's either. great in Kong Skull Island. Maybe but he's it, he may even be the best thing about it. I'm I not mean, saying that. I'm saying mm-hmm. I'm saying we've seen he he does that all the time. Hollywood wants him in that Kong Skull Island role, the crazy guy, the weird guy, the dumb guy, whatever. Yeah. It, okay. It's awesome to see him not be that stuff sure. for a change, to be a guy who, while he says something funny every once in a while, it, it, it does so like as a character that's a person. It's hard right. to explain, but kind of like like him in Magnolia uh, when he's the cop in Magnolia. Yeah, he's, he's a yes. real guy there. He's a real guy in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And I'm not, you know, I just and he he's quirky enough just as a human being, <laughs> right? That, no, you know, no matter what he says, right. sometimes it's going to kind of make you laugh or make you chuckle just because right. he's an odd duck of a human. Right. And um, I like I like watching him play the the I like watching him play these crazy, weird, funny mm-hmm. people. You know, I like him in Talladega Nights and everything. I mean, I you know, I, I love him. I'm I just saying you know, he's walk hard is even he, you know, he's he's a, a crap movie like walk hard. He it's he makes it so much fun. Right. Because he, he just anchors that thing. Uh, right. All right. This, uh, so, you're just, I'm just warning you. This, this Joaquin plays that, and Joaquin plays it in an off the hook, unpredictable way. And you're in a way that is not satisfying or would not have been satisfying in something like Kong Skull Island. And Riley, on the other hand, he just has to show up because you can't, you can't, it can't be Riz Ahmed as a mad scientist and Joaquin as this crazy psycho. What's he going to do? Somebody in the room has to tell the story and be the <laughs> thing that, that yeah, yeah. gives you a reason to believe in any of it. And Riley picked the script, picked, you know, bought the rights to the book and picked a role for himself. And it's a great role. It's, it's, you don't, you don't, actors don't get enough credit for doing that, you know, without, we've talked about a bunch of different movies now, but very famously when Christian Bale won his Oscar for the, for the fighter, he said something that I think is true and that we should always remember. He thanked for, at the end of his list of all the people he thanked when he won that Oscar was, was Mark Wahlberg. And he said, I, 
you know, I couldn't have done this in a movie if you weren't there in all these scenes, you know, being the story, holding down the reality mm-hmm. of the thing. You can't, if you don't have that partner to balance things out, to make it grounded in reality, then you're just a bunch of crazy nonsense. You, you let me stretch this out as far as I could. And without you, I couldn't have done it. And I, that's the kind of thing this is. Maybe not quite on that grand a scale, but yeah, I, I loved that speech for that reason. And then I loved watching Bale pay that back in American Hustle with the same basic group of people. That was right where he really he still got to be a little loony, but where he really had to be the human core of the story because if he wasn't, there was he wasn't going to get a lot of help from this other rogues gallery of people. Yeah. So I love, I like sisters brothers a lot. It- it's again, it's a very actorly movie where the performances are very super, um, where they're just given the priority of the thing. And as a result, the plot is kind of a little random and there's some other things about it, but I liked it a lot. I like, I like Ahmed in it a lot. I like Gyllenhaal a lot. Yeah. I haven't even mentioned a woman yet. Right. <laughs> they are Western. Um, Sorry about they that. They are Western. There's yeah. some coming, so hang in there. Um, all right. Next up is a, a guy I was for having for ab- no reason at all. I was thinking about what what is what has he been up to? What is, where am I going to see him again? Bill <laughs> Pullman starring in The Ballad of Lefty Brown. Well, he's got his TV show, which is a pretty big hit. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, where he plays the, the tortured detective. That's a role everybody secretly wants to play at one point in their life. He plays as tortured a tortured detective as has ever been tortured. I can't remember the name of the show. <laughs> the Sinner. The Sinner, right. It's a good show. Not a great show necessarily, but quite good. Um, and Bill's a big reason for that. He's he again, he it's it's a great it's a it's a great part for him because he gets to do very little and he gets to just show you slivers of things. And whether you know it or not, those, tor- you know, on a TV show in particular, the people who are big, broad and badass, you get exhausted with in a hurry. It, you, it, there is a slow burn nature to doing good television where you kind of let the character happen a little naturally. And that keeps us interested in them. the mystery of them keeps us interested. Lefty Brown, I have to say though, is a whole different thing altogether. Lefty Brown is your your typical um, uh, dumb. He's I don't want to call him dumb because I don't even want to call him useless. But he's this he's a problematic hanger on guy in all these other cowboys' life. You know, uh, Peter Fonda and other people. He's he's a uh, he's the not the reliable one. He's the one that. Nobody trusts. Nobody thinks is making a smart decision. Nobody believes what he says about anything because he's always lying about everything. And he get it, be, all of that history sort of catches up with him in a moment where what he's trying to do is the right thing. And it's an interesting story in that way because this guy is truly on an island, and even the people he's helping are against him. It's a, a cool story like that. It's a simple Western revenge story. You know, you you mm-hmm. killed my friend. My friend was the only person I cared about, so I'm going to find out who did it, and I'm going to I'm just going to yeah. shoot him and kill him because it's the old west after all. And his friend's widow, and just nobody believes him. Everyone thinks for a while, everyone thinks it's him that did it. <laughs> so yeah. it's cool, it, and he's. It's hard to explain. 
he's he's like he's like one of those cartoon sidekicks, you know, who just make jokes the whole time, and then but every once in a while they say something, and it's like, geez, that's almost profound, you know, that's a cliche, but in Pullman's hands, it it really works well, and I found the ballad of Lefty Brown to be really entertaining and great for Bill Pullman fans who were thinking like Joel was, because. Uh, I, if you're thinking about watching like the Independence Day sequel or something, I recommend Ballad of Lefty Brown instead. It's way, way better, mm-hmm. way better, and way better Pullman-esque projects. Yeah, I just he's gonna be in another film. I just saw it in a trailer. Um, he's always been a really good actor. Yeah. He's always, you know, he's he's always been this, you know, somewhat generic guy on the outside, but there's always something going on in him. That's a little different. And, and mm-hmm. the older he gets, the more he's going to get to flex those muscles. And that's fun to see because he's, he ain't a leading man anymore. And he's not, he's not even the guy that the girl breaks up with for the leading man anymore. He's, he's going to have to, which he did a ton. In the films. Right. Um, he, he's, you know, he's, he's gotta, he's going to get old and he's got to find ways to keep it interesting. And he's, he's becoming the old, grizzled character actor of our dreams right before our eyes and that's exciting because he's a good yeah. one we like bill um all right let's move on uh i am i'm just gonna do this because i have to pull something up here all right that bought me enough time all right so next up it, no oh, whip sorry. that time all right <laughs> no. there we go. i'm not doing it again that last yeah, no. whip left me hanging I'll I'll give you the the whip will be in the um, It can't be film. or now this version of me will sound stupid. You're sticking with that no whip. All right. All right. Okay, hey, that's one less edit for me to do. I'll I'll, I'll yeah. You got your whip in afterwards. So we kind of had it both ways. All right. Next up is uh the stolen. Uh what did I say? New Zealand western, right? Yeah, this is the New Zealand. Yep, this is the Alice one. Eve plays a woman whose kid is kidnapped and given to some settler couple upriver, and she's got to go on this odyssey to get her daughter back. You know, it's basically a Lifetime movie of the week, except it's set Mm -hmm. in the wilds of New Zealand in this sort of Western frontier setting. Uh, Is is it Graham McTavish that's in this one, too? Correct. Graham McTavish! And... uh, a great Scottish actor and uh, Jack Davenport from who you all know from the uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films. Mm-hmm. Jack's a great actor, and he his role in this film is really interesting. Graham is what he always is, but he's he's uh, Johnny on the spot with the with the sort of old grizzled guy story. And and Alice plays this at least for the New Zealand. You know, she's this. She's just total fish out of water, but she's just, it's force of will and whatever that connection is between uh, movie baby and movie mom that just can't be stopped. And she goes on this incredible odyssey to the end of the world, truly, (laughs) to find her kid and then to get it back and to get it out of there to safety. Like just, it's a, it's really cool. It's a dark kind of dark western i have to say it's not a happy story but but you you're you you can't not root for her and alice eve's another she's this 
she's just a really she's a really cool actor that's sort of trapped in this generically blonde hot body and hollywood's tried to have their way with her and to some one degree or another kind of has but she she's you can see her always trying to she does these things that really push the envelope you know she's done some really tricky roles in some very complicated movies mm-hmm. um they're not the type that get watched but i always appreciate that when somebody who can maneuver through you know what we there was this era that she was in where you know they did a valentine's day movie and a new year's movie and it's all this big budget hollywood crap and all these stars show up for it she's done her fair share of stuff like that but she shows up in films like this and she's carries this movie and is outstanding in it so hats off to her well terrific yeah. uh okay and it next- was a tough a shoot you can feel it you can feel yeah. the sweat the mud the wetness the rain like you really can feel it all and it's it so it's it's a jungle western to some degree but um it, it really still is a western despite all that it's, it's the classic western except instead of hiring a gunfighter to go find her kid for her she she goes and does it herself which is awesome mm-hmm. um okay next up is hostiles this is probably the best movie we're going to talk about, and it's a little tough to talk about, actually, because it's so good and so kind of nuanced. Um, it obviously has lots of Western trappings. A post-Civil War captain, played by Christian Bale, is hired to bring a old war, uh, an old, uh, is it Lakota? I can't remember. Uh, Cheyenne. Cheyenne warrior basically to the reservation where he's to be retired there. I don't mean that. I mean that literally they just, they're, they're caught this guy. They kind of are still in a place where they don't want to start a battle by killing him, but they want him out of the way. And so he's, it needs to be escorted to the land that's been designated for him to disappear onto. And, uh, Bale's character who's been fighting the Cheyenne and sort of living the tough frontier life of a soldier um, obviously has a lot of mixed feelings about that. And Christian Bale, Wes Studi, and there's a woman in it too, played by Rosamund Pike. That's, I can tell you right now, folks, that's tough to beat. And even though the feel, the movie feels like a play set outside at times, it's a talky movie for a, you know what I mean for this kind of mm-hmm. thing? It's full of atmosphere and stuff, but it it really isn't a conventional western. It's a rather unconventional one. There's a few shootouts and things, and they run into all kinds of trouble on their trip. You know, th- in that way, it's very much a conventional western. But uh, it's it's hard to make an allegory about America and still have the characters and things not just represent ideals or represent. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. have to be they have to be characters that you believe for it to be a wor- a story worth telling and hostiles just nails both parts of that plus it's just stunningly beautiful and atmospheric film Re- truly it's one of those that you could really follow it with the volume off you know you'd miss sure. out on the music then too which i don't recommend but you really it it's it's all in the eyes and it's the meaning is there in every scene, you know, and I, I really, really dig that. So that hostiles is a really strong film. Very cool. Very cool. And Uh, again, plenty of star power, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just 
it again, it's a westerns. People just didn't see it. That's just, and thank God these filmmakers grew up on these things and loved them the way I do, or nobody would make them because these mm -hmm. all these films are these. It, that's one of the things that's great about it. It's so one of the things that's great about the modern indie western is that they really are labors of love of somebody involved. They yeah. don't get made because they're going to make money. They can be made cheaply and independently. They're action movies that can be made on the cheap. So that gives them some appeal to the smaller movie studios like Lionsgate and stuff. But but somebody to make a Western today, somebody's got to really, really care about the core story. And, and this movie, you can feel that, that the the love and the meaning behind it all comes through more so than any of the rest of them. It's a great film. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite films of a couple of years ago. Hostiles. Yeah. And it, it doesn't surprise me. So, you know, something that we are getting, you know, a list talent and all these, and, and some of these are a list or, or I mean, are actor uh, driven productions in the sense that, you know, mm -hmm. actors are also producing these things because um, actors also uh, traditionally love being in westerns they love you know everyone you know men women they love having you know the the big bulky gun the, the or the gun on the the holster mm -hmm. the clothes the chaps the horse riding the you know it, it, it's it is uh it's a fun era to get to try to sort of immerse we remember in our J.O. Sanders interview we talked to him we didn't we barely talked about the couple of westerns that he did but you just saw him light up when we started talking about him you could yep. just see that excitement about oh yeah you know uh, I could have done westerns forever you know what I mean yep. it's like it, that's neat that's a very real thing Joel's talking about yep. and if you want the evidence you click back and watch that episode again you'll see him when we talk about the young riders and a couple of the other things that he worked on of that nature and he, he loved doing that stuff and i get it i get it it's neat mm -hmm. okay next one is woman walks ahead ah we talked about this too in an end of year episode i loved woman walks ahead this film was written by stephen knight who's one of my favorite screenwriters of all time and it it skews the history a little bit it's the story of the woman who came out west to paint sitting bull's portrait uh, yes. Just uh, right as the his ghost dancing protests started, people don't. I mean, I think maybe people do remember. Sitting Bull was a, a political figure, truly. Like he was a very savvy guy. You know, he he did the Bill Cody Wild West show, and he made a lot of money for that. There's this great scene where he makes a bunch of money from this woman who comes out West, you know, looking to uh, kind of exploit him to a little bit of a degree, but also to capture something that she thought was going to be lost as an artist. And he, he kind of cons her out of a bunch of money. And then he asked, he basically gives it all back to her and asks her to, to use it for these people in this village that he's living in. So he, he was, and his folks before him were wealthy Native Americans, we don't tend to think of them that way, but they were a, a well-to-do family throughout history. And he knew sort of how, he knew the value of money to both to, to his own culture, but to, to white people in particular, he knew how to exploit them for it. And then he kind of knew how to make it work for his cause too. And all that is in the film. It's great. But mm -hmm. the, I guess the, who plays Sitting Bull in it? Can you tell me? 
Uh, yes, I can. Before uh, I move on, we really should mention him because he's uh, extraordinary in it. Yeah, Michael Gray Eyes. Man, is he good. Really, really good portrayal of a very complicated guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman is Jessica Chastain. She plays the artist. And there's several other really good actors, too, that are involved in it. It's a, it's a, it's a really good movie, but it's not... This truly is not a shoot 'em up Western. It really is a... Yeah a drama that takes place right as the old West is dying as seen from this East coast liberals point of view. Um, but, and it's also about this very unique relationship that these two people had. Um, and even though the details are sort of, the details really are jumbled around to make a nice dramatic arc. You know, it really is inspired by true events rather than trying to tell the story of the last days of Sitting Bull. But, um, but it gets a lot of the de- the little details it gets right, and that those things are where the thing kind of lives and breathes. Mm-hmm. And I, woman walks ahead. That's the name that Sitting Bull gives to Chastain's right. character. Caroline Caroline Weldon is the name, yeah, which is was a non plume. She was a. Uh, she was a divorced high society woman, which she wasn't even divorced yet. In the film, she's a widow and she's haunted and all these sort of conventional movie mm. things, no offense. To Stephen Knight, who I said was a great writer, he sort of knew you got to get to the point. <laughs> you got to get the thing yeah. going or it can't even be a thing. Right. So he eschewed the complicated nature of her, but she changed her name because she slept around on a husband that everybody knew and she couldn't go by his name and she did couldn't marry the next guy until she got a divorce, which was not easy to get if a woman wanted one in those days. So blah, blah, blah. The woman of the story in real life was a very complicated woman. The woman in the movie is equally complicated, but just in some different ways. Woman, woman Walks Ahead is a great yeah. film. Yeah, a, And a great sort of feminist Western in a way. Yeah, it's a Zwick Herskovitz uh, production. production. Yeah, yeah, and so, Stephen yeah. Knight, who you know, is direct, and, and a woman directed it too, whose name I can't remember. Susanna White, and it, that makes a difference. There's this. I don't want to ruin it. There's this. There's there are a couple of things in the film that happen that are so poetic and wonderful and so cinematic and tragic, and it just like I I just kind of ruin the whole thing if I say what they are, but okay. yeah. there are these ideas that clearly inspired Knight's script that make the thing worth telling. And I really believe for a person who wants to watch a nuanced human story, there's a lot to reward you here. Um, it, it, the, so the Westing trappings should not dissuade you from seeing it. If you love a really, really good biographical drama, because that's really more what it is. Well, that, excellent. Okay. Next up. Uh, is in a valley of violence <laughs> a revenge story by people just too stupid to pull it off <laughs> yes i see it is a blumhouse production <laughs> it is um i don't know oh i guess they were working on one of those uh, uh killing day movies what's what are those called uh um where the day comes where you get to the, kill everybody uh, or yeah whatever. um Purge, the purge. purge, some purge movie, maybe the first purge movie. They were working on it, and they were in this house, and they were all blacked out, and you know, and in their free time during setups and stuff, uh, T. West and Ethan Hawke would sit in a corner and watch westerns. 
And they're like, yeah, we should make a Western, you know, and they convinced Blum to fund it. And he's got money coming out of his ears from all his low budget horror success. And they made a really fun, low budget uh, Western. Again, this film is a Western with Ethan Hawke that came out right before Magnificent Seven. So he literally made three Westerns in a row, which is just crazy to think of. But in this one, he plays the Drifter. It's basically a re it's a loose remake of High Plains Drifter, except the bad guys are incredibly stupid. And the the one guy who does have some smarts, uh, played by John Travolta, Marshall, who kind of runs the town, his kid is one of the stupid gang people who do something stupid that caused this that caused the valley to erupt with violence and it can't really be stopped. And it's his character. Hawk is great in it, but, and the kid is great in it. And the, the, the gang of idiots are all played by these grizzle wet Larry Fastens in plays one of them. And the, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, you know, they're these great characters to play these Western idiots. It's hard to explain, but they're a staple of all these films. You know, this time you got basically all of the kinds in a movie together making the thing happen and it's tragic what happens the film's not a comedy or anything it's awful um but it's it there it's it says something about the world too and it says something about just the world of violence uh, t's if i'm saying his name right i'm never sure but i call him t west yeah um you know his films always have some weird underlying sad meaning to them even his dumbest horror movies there's some sad human truth at the core of them that's why they're worth watching because i don't necessarily love any of them but i i enjoy them all to one degree or another because he's a thoughtful filmmaker this film is like that it's just in a western setting and travolta's fantastic he gives a really really strong subtle performance because he really is the only one he gets what's happening and is and it trying to make peace and can't and the helplessness of that for a guy to be smart enough, but to sadly be related to the person who's to blame for everything and, and knows there's a reckoning coming and knows he's on the wrong side of it, but still is stuck there. It That's mm -hmm. really, really cool. And Ethan, you know, Ethan will talk with you until the, it's time for the shooting to start, but he's on a mission in that film that can't be stopped and it's fun to watch him in that kind of role too. Cause usually he's the quiet, thoughtful type. So I, I, in the Valley of Violence, it's 90 breezy minutes. It's a very entertaining Western, lots of shootouts, lots of really dumb people saying super dumb and funny <laughs> things. This, despite the underlying tragedy of the story like that really, it does have great entertainment value. There's another movie coming up here too, that does that really, really well. We'll talk about that. Very cool. All right, uh, next up is The Duel. Oh, uh, a U.S. Marshal is sent out to the southern Mississippi or something to, to uh, investigate some murders. Mm -hmm. It's a little different. D slightly different setting, kind of a different story. Uh, something that's not different is a lot of these modern Westerns have the, a, a recurring character, especially in the later period ones, is the evil preacher character. And Woody oh, Harrelson yeah. plays an evil preacher you know, where, uh, what did they say? <laughs> they said, it's a quote from a different movie and I'm not even going to source the quote, but it was, you know, he's the kind of preacher who church don't end till the snakes are back in the bag. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish I could remember what that's from. It's funny. 
Because we all know what kind of preacher that is. Mm -hmm. Harrelson, though, plays the guy like he knows he's evil and deserves to die. And when the lawman comes to town, played by a very great, old-fashioned, generic, heroic role, played by Liam Hemsworth, the greatest heroic, generic guy out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, he... <laughs> and I mean that in a, as a compliment. Like, he, he's just the guy who... He just he, he just lives and breathes this sort of, you know. That's why the reversal that happens with him in Hunger Games is so powerful because you just don't you don't see it coming from that guy even though you see it literally before it happens, you still kind of don't believe it until you experience it. And in this film, the power comes from this guy's, you know, rides into town. Alice Braga's in it to a Brazilian actress who's fantastic and everything. Um and it's going to solve the town's problems. And the and, but he runs into a villain who isn't a ugly, mean spirited gunslinger. He's this crazy preacher who has everybody wrapped around his fingers and who has all this guilt about being an evil preacher, and is happy to see the guy come to kill him, and yet won't go down without a fight. So it's this very interesting, weird dynamic where the the villain and Harrelson plays and Harrelson plays this in a great way. And of course the two of them are in the Hunger Games movie. So there's this natural chemistry between them that I don't, it doesn't really matter because they're strangers in the film, but it, it matters. It makes a difference in the film because this is a really low budget one. I have to say it's, <laughs> but it's, and in the Valley of Violence, I guess, similarly, they're all widescreen entertainments that are shot by people who know how to make movies. But uh, it's just, you know, you look at the cast list, like 12 people or something, you know, that right. actually have speaking roles, that kind of film. But it's a good one. It's a good one. If you're a fan of Harrelson and you want to see him doing something kind of different, although it's kind mm -hmm. of the same as his other weird people roles, but, you know, he can do that sort of thing. Like the weird guy he plays in the final Planet of the Apes movie, that military guy. Yeah that Colonel Kurtz type dude that he played, you know, Woody's great at that stuff. And he doesn't, he advocates for this guy who's clearly evil in a weird way that makes the film unique. That's what I liked about it. Cause sure. Liam, like I said, with respect, he, there's nothing unique about him. The young upstanding morally centered guy who goes to town to solve the murders. Yeah. Also the murders aren't necessarily what you think either. So there's a, it starts out like the A plot, but it becomes sort of not when he gets to town, but that's that's different than what you think, too, which is kind of neat. All right. And a great, great uh, shootout. Shootouts, I think, are play better in towns and taverns in particular. We all agree with that. But there's a great out-in-the-wilderness shootout that caps off this film that's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah. Um, okay, next up is... They all have great shootouts, though. Even... Yeah. Uh, only woman walks ahead so far does not contain a super satisfying, awesome climactic shootout. There you go. And, and maybe it should have, maybe it should have been Jessica Chastain running up going. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it should uh, not have included that. <laughs> uh, all right. Next up is brimstone. Oh God. Talk about crazy preachers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brimstone was supposed to star Mia Wasawaga Wagiawara, uh, the Australian chick who's awesome yeah. and all kinds of cool stuff, whose name just has a couple too many vowels and syllables for me to say her properly. It's not a puzzle w name. W Wasakowska. 
that shouldn't be so hard, but, but I'll, I'll say, Mia, I'll say that 30 or 40 times fast. It's, it's, it's not funny, old mm. white guys, like, not being able to pronounce people's names anymore, but it, but. It, it, well, it's Vash, Vashikovska. <laughs> Mia Vashikovska. Vashikovska. I'll give that a shot. Yep. That's a I cool do. name. She's a yep, great I actor. Her and Robert Pattinson were supposed to star in this, but she dropped out because of some scheduling problems when it ran over. And uh, and then Pat, because she dropped out, Pattinson dropped out because he was gearing up to do uh, Lost City of Z, which was going to be take quite a bit of effort to do, and and thought it wouldn't come off since she dropped out. But they got their, who was their original first choice, they got Dakota Fanning to do it. And then when Pattinson dropped out, he was replaced uh, at the last second with Kit Harrington, who agreed to cut his Game of Thrones vacation short and show up for it. But the real star of the thing, and the reason the film happened, even though all its stars dropped out right before shooting was about to start, which is usually not a good sign, is that Guy Pierce came up from Australia. He just... He just decided he liked this weird character and he kind of wanted to play him. And he thought if he showed up on set, you know, if he showed up early to make this film, that that might make it actually happen. And it he mm. turned out to be very prophetic. Had he not, had he waited to see what was going to happen, the film would have been canceled. Which would have been a shame because it's an interesting film. But it's it's... I don't want to say it's the most unpleasant film on this list because there's one super unpleasant one yeah. coming up soon. But... It's it's tough. It's a really really tough movie. It's shot out of uh, you know it's 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 got all these chapters and vignettes that are shot out of time, so you experience yeah. the story not in chronological order. It's really not much of a story of a west like it. It's the story of the abused woman trying to escape a psycho from hell who will travel across the world to find her and abuse her because he's just that evil and obsessed played by guy pierce in this case who's this evil preacher and it's a it, because it's out of time and because it has those sort of christopher nolan-esque storytelling techniques it's it's a bit of a movie to puzzle and there's quite a bit of metaphor going on in it there's quite a bit of unreliable narration happening is this real is this not real um i don't I'm not, I always, we always say, don't, when you, if you sit down and watch Brimstone based on what we've said, don't, you know, let it happen to you. Mm -hmm. Don't try and figure it out while it's happening. That will make it a, a frustrating experience. But, but give it, you know, when you're done, give it some thought. It's a film that deserves to be examined a little bit and just studied and read about afterwards because there's all kinds of, fantastic theories and the filmmaker in question this dutch filmmaker he, martin kuhlhoven he's great and he like you should like in like in a david lynch way and not a ridley scott way he won't give you the answers he just says oh that's interesting <laughs> like he won't he's not going to help which is great yeah. <laughs> but i i liked brimstone for that reason i i like dakota fanning she's really underrated i mean She's super kind of overrated kid actor, but as an adult actor, she's quite underrated because she was an overrated kid actor, which doesn't seem fair. But good in it. They were lucky to get her, even though I can see how Mia was kind of perfect for it. Um, 
I didn't. I mentioned that Kit came on to do Pattinson's role. Pattinson said, "Man, if I'd have known they were going to make that movie, I wouldn't have dropped out. I would have made it." And because he's his career, you know, he shows up in some high-profile things every once in a while, but his career is mostly made up of these little weird projects. He's got a mm-hmm. whole pile of them. That is his acting career. And it's only punctuated by big Hollywood movies. So he likes doing interesting stories like these. And that part's a great role for him. But it's maybe even better for Harrington, I have to say. Because Kit, so... He's just so blatantly heroic somehow. He's like so, there's, there's just something about him earnest, where... He's got an earnestness to him that yeah, is... Yeah, and even though he plays so a rather yeah. serious badass of a character in this, like... He, you believe he's the guy that's come to save the day, and and even though even though unfortunately that character is a, a badass from a whole different movie, and he doesn't really realize the movie he stumbled into, and that's <laughs> that's <laughs> he stumbled into a different kind of movie altogether. Mm-hmm. Sadly for him, and it's it's a it's cool. Brimstone is really wild and out there. I I dug it a lot. I, I just keep I can't stop looking at this poster of um and guy because Guy Pierce looks so much it's like he, it, it, it's like he's moved into Sam Neill's body yeah he just looks so much like Sam Neill in here I and his weird him. Dutch accent is really weird and he's just he's <laughs> uh, you know look you just need to experience him to get it it's a great actor playing a part that's just loaded with great stuff to mm-hmm. chew on and to tackle. And he does a great job. Um, speaking of, uh, of actors that can grow amazing mustaches and facial hair. Uh, <laughs> next up is Kurt Russell in bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk is a horror movie. First off. I, I, I call it a Western because the horrors, uh, I don't, without ruining anything are not supernatural. Um, and because they only really show up in the third act, even though they're talked about throughout. Um, so it really is a let's go rescue the townsfolk sort of Western, but it's extremely dark one with an absolutely horrific, bloody, violent, visage, carnage, entrails, the works, you know, splattered about at the last act of the film. But other than... Before it's that, it's these kind of motley crew of people who, who they're women and old folk who've been kidnapped for some nefarious purpose. They're gonna eat them. That's the spoiler there's, alert there's for this, Bone there's, there's a snack element to yeah. it. Yeah. Um. So there's there these people, these cave people who really have lost their minds, essentially, in our living a whole different way of life than humans have, you know, post-dawn of man. And they're going out to rescue them. One of them, uh, Matthew Fox for the money, you know, uh, uh, Kurt Russell because he's obligated to, Richard Jenkins because he's the deputy who finally gets to do some deputy work because he's basically the deputy who just does the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Down. Richard Jenkins, such a great actor. And uh who else is in this? There's a handful of other folks that uh, are. Oh yeah, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox. Oh yeah, Patrick Wilson's great. He's always welcome, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he's David married to somebody, I believe, and that's why he has to go. Because he's the real fish out of water. Who else? 
we have uh, um, David Arquette. Yeah, Sh- David Arquette. Sean Young is in it. Sean Young. Who's the woman in it that's so good? Uh, Lily Simmons. Lily, Lily Simmons, yes. Good actor. Yeah, so it's good. It's really good. It's one of Conan O'Brien's favorite movies of that year. It <laughs> It's... It's really good. Horror fans adore it. Western fans pretty much like it because you get what you want. I just feel like if you're a Western fan, I feel like you need to warn you about it. If you're a horror fan, you don't need any warning except that you got to wait a while for the horror to start. Um, but if you don't like either, even though this is absolutely one of the better films on this list, it still feels hard to recommend because you really have to. It's a film you have to survive. Yeah. The, to get to the end, you know, as a viewer, you have to survive it. Yeah, it's a, nominated. It, this movie was like nominated for like Fangoria Chainsaw Awards as well as like uh, Independent Spirit Awards and things like that. <laughs> so it's like it, it it runs a nice gamut. So clearly, it's yeah. got some it's got some chops going on with it, uh, and so it's not just. If we ever did a list of horror westerns, it would be the at the very top. There you go. But there's no such list. Right now, that's like a list of three movies, two of which suck. So this one is really, really great, and it deserves right. to be noted for that. I mean, Russell's really, really great. You know, they, they, all these actors, you heard the list, Patrick Wilson, they all bring a lot to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And Matthew Fox is out of favor at court right now. I get it, but I mean... It, he plays a rather dark guy in this, and it's it's not difficult for him to channel that. It's very very convincing on screen, so so it's um, it's all good all the way around. Yeah. All right, if you've ever felt like uh, one Sutherland is not enough in the next film, you get two Sutherlands in Forsaken. They also had two th- Sutherlands in Max Dugan Returns and two Sutherlands in A Time to Kill. But they've never had a scene together. Well, they're on screen together in Max Dugan Returns in a baseball standpoint. In but, a yeah. baseball scene. But, but they, true, they, they don't they, really act a scene together. I mean, um, and and actually, uh, Kiefer Sutherland said that the, the making of Forsaken was the longest period without a break that he spent with his father in his whole life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he said they've been hoping the right script would come along, but you know, it was, something happened. Paul Newman, I think, died because Redford and Newman were always saying, "Well, we're waiting for the right script to come along, and we'll do another movie together." Like you all mm-hmm. keep asking, but it's kind of got to be the right thing. And you know, Newman retired. Now Redford's retired too. No more movies from those guys. And uh, Kiefer said, "Well, so I decided I needed to make something happen, like or it which wasn't going to happen." Yeah. It's a great story about a guy, a guy who saw some horrors in the Civil War and then on his way home just couldn't find his way home. He became a gunfighter for hire. He embraced the horror, didn't know what else to do, killed a bunch of people, mostly bad guys. You know, he is a guy right. who has a, a moral compass for sure, but still has lived this sort of life of death and carnage and comes home to put that away. But he comes home to his preacher father played by donald sutherland who still is not very accepting of his kid he's a he's a true believer and his kids if he ever had any faith which he doesn't seem to have it doesn't have any anymore he's trying to walk the straight and narrow he's trying to put the violence behind him but he doesn't know how his uh childhood sweethearts married another guy who's kind of a he's not he's not a jerk but he's kind of a dork we'll say yeah. um 
and he can't reconnect with his life the way he wants to. He can kind of, he's, he's like addicted to violence and can only take one step at a time. And it's a really powerful movie. Kiefer, ever, ever since 24 shut down, Kiefer, everything Kiefer's done has been these tortured guys on walkabout who just are trying to put their awful pasts behind them. I really don't think that's a coincidence. You know, even his president character that he played on the designated whatever, like that guy's, you know, he's a, he's a transportation secretary who just is this nerdy dude who, when he does his press conferences, his president has to remember to take his glasses off. So he doesn't seem too professorial. Like, right. Kiefer has that to him, that side of him that he's embraced that, like I said, especially after his sort of pro torture, you know, Fox show that went on for forever. Right, right. He's got that in him, too. He's played a pretty, you know, Lost Boys, the aforementioned A Time to Kill. He's played some pretty nasty heavies throughout the years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this was an important piece to them, and that father-son thing, I mean, it's, that's, that works. It, you, you have to know it, but it really, really works. It's the core of the story. Um... There's a Brian Cox plays a rancher trying to drive the villagers off their land. There's nothing. I mean, there everything mm-hmm. in this story is a cliche, sort of deliberately. What's not is the people. Starting with Kiefer, but my favorite uh, step out of the usual cliche is Michael Wincott plays the hired gun of the Brian Cox character and he's going through something similar. This is really unique. It's unique for Michael to be playing this part, and it's unique that this guy in this role in this movie has any sort of depth to him at all, other than that he's just a mean bastard. He's sick of killing people, too. <laughs> he's, you know, his mm-hmm. his right-hand man, who's a total psycho, played by somebody I can't remember who's awesome in it, and you, you, it'd be tough to you to figure out based on the cast list. Right. Um, but he comes up, you know, and again, it's cliche, but it's cliche in a great way. He comes up to Kiefer when he comes into the saloon, he's like, and immediately starts intimidating him. He's like, I killed four people. You ever heard of me? And he's like, no, I can't say I have. He's like, well, blah, blah, blah. And he just keeps wants to start a fight with a guy for no reason. These films are all full of this. They all have this scene in them. Yeah. It, it, in the Valley of Violence, it happens only because of this scene. If they just would have not talked in a tavern, none of this shit would have happened is basically the lesson of that story. <laughs> in this one, Kiefer's really, it's going to take a lot more than a lot of tough talk or even a ass-kicking to get him to sort of break his vow of nonviolence. But it's great to eat he kind of talks this guy down and he goes back to his crew to play poker and Wincott comes up to him and he goes, Hey, my name's Dave, whatever you might know. Gentleman me as, Dave. Yeah, you Dave. might know me as gentleman Dave. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you I've heard of is what he says. To him. <laughs> <laughs> and these two guys have this bond. Dave says to him, he's like, you know, I saw you, I have to say it was my pleasure to see you gun down this evil guy that, you know, he goes, that was, that was something to see. I got to say it. He's like, Oh, okay. Thanks. And he's, so we're not going to have any problems here. And Kiefer's great line. He says it as he's walking out the door. He goes, not from me, he says. But, of course, he gets drawn into the thing. You can't yep. not. You know where it's going to go. But Gentleman Dave, man, I just got to say, that guy it and their relationship, it, it's outstanding. And the, I, I love the film for that reason. Uh, Demi Moore, too. Uh, shout out to her. 
taken a little part. In, her and Kiefer are lifelong friends. They were in, I don't know which ones, but they've been in movies together. It's hard for me to remember, but they were all part of that Brat Pack. Exactly. So she shows up and brings a lot of again weight and history in a very small role that with a different actor might have been great, but with her. She elevates it, and I, Kiefer understands that, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, they sort of mapped out this story together, but he was wise enough not to do it himself. He got a director and writer to do it. I love Forsaken. Forsaken's the movie that I saw uh, that made me think of doing this list. So it really, it's like the quintessential, maybe not, it's not the best film on this list, but it's the sort of exact kind of exact kind of perfect example of yeah, this yeah. type of film. Yeah. If you, if you're a fan of any of the above, I, I recommend it. It's also a relatively crowd pleasing western, and it, yeah. it 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 has the biggest handgun I've ever seen in a western, <laughs> 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 which is apparently was a real thing, which was really really powerful. But because it was so high maintenance, gunfighters typically di- didn't use it because you right. you needed to reload fast, you needed to draw fast. You were not going to draw this thing fast. Yeah. You know, you were at a major disadvantage if you tried. So, but it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a movie that has all this meaning, deep meaning in it, interpersonal meaning. Um, and yet it's still the big gun comes out at the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Hard to explain. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, these and last... I love Michael Wincott, you know. Yeah. He's always, yeah. you know, he always shows you the human side of the bad guys he plays. He's really good at that. He, he always... You think of mm-hmm. Guy Gisborne in the Prince of Thieves, for example. Like that guy is a bit of a dumbass, and he, it, what Wincott brings to that role is that he sort of knows that he is. Like this is a guy who's the bad guy because he's related to the real bad guy, and he's kind of doing his best to be a bad guy, but he's not—he's right. not particularly great at it, and he doesn't really relish it. That all comes through in the film somehow. It's not on the page. Mm-hmm. that's the kind of actor he is and this role i mean man he's good in it i just loved it i love gentleman dave and you're just like God, they're gonna have to shoot it out with each other it, it just sucks <laughs> yeah so check it out um, forsaken all right. so these last these last few films here uh we go back in time a little bit uh from you know because uh forsaken was what 2015 yeah uh now we're gonna go back seven years to t- 2008 um, Ooh, wow didn't they make any feel- westerns in between them well, not, they, I'm sure. Well, these are the indie westerns that I think started the indie western, and because yeah. they're technically part of the streaming era, they kind of got on this list. But I think these sort of kicked it off, and we'll do these a little faster. I guess. Yeah. So, Appaloosa, which I feel is a movie we've talked about before, uh, but I'm not perhaps sure. Ed Harris and Viggo Mortensen. It's a relatively mm-hmm. big budget western. Ed Harris it was his second directorial project after um, Pollock. And, and of course, they had just done, uh, what's the Cronenberg film that also has violence in the title? Um, yeah, yes, it's one of his, it's one of Viggo Mortensen's best, best uh, known films. Yeah, is. they did, Ed, and Ed Harris is in it as sort of the bad guy. So yeah, they knew each uh, other from that. History of Violence. History of Violence. Yeah. Um, really, really good film. Uh they just play a couple of guys who come to town because Jeremy Irons is the, again, an evil rancher who the town doesn't have, has completely lost control of. And they hire this guy, uh, Virgil Cole and his trusty sidekick. 
to keep the peace. And he does. He quickly whips them down into shape. Ed Harris plays this, the old Western guy, you know, who gets the job done, you know, is sort of a badass. And, and Vigo is, is a really fun sidekick to him and is also like a really steady hand with a big shotgun at his side. And the two of them basically do what, what they came to do the, what, where things get screwed up is this, uh, woman the church organist comes to town and gets a job as a piano player in a saloon uh played by renee zellweger and i this is my favorite renee zellweger role it's probably weird to say that because she's won oscars and stuff and because this woman if you're if you can't if you come to this with a sort of Ryan Murphy slash Shonda Rhimes sense of easy justice, if you really like CSI episodes, or if you really think there's 8 million serial killers like in that serial killer show, and that they we catch one every week in a satisfying way, then you're this is not the movie for you. Because the, the conventional heroic Western, which it, it, it has in spades in the first hour, completely comes off the rail when the woman gets involved. And the woman is... Adriana Gill from Pan's Labyrinth plays like the town horror that Viggo Mortensen has a, <laughs> like a recurring business transactions with. And they, they seem to have actually a little more than a connection than that. And he doesn't understand Zellweger's character. And he asks her about it and she goes, you know what? She probably doesn't understand it. She's just drawn to whoever the alpha male is in the room and can't help herself and probably doesn't even know why. Sometimes we don't know what we do. You know, she sort of explains it to him so that he can at least act on it. But you go online and read it, and you read all these butch Western fans going, "I thought this Western was awesome until Ed Harris became a big pussy." (laughs) (laughs) They just fundamentally didn't dig the story, or even the idea that you know this Eastwood-like badass could lose his dignity when he fell in love with somebody and but that happens to us man it happens to all of us maybe not all of us maybe not the guys writing those reviews but that that you've lost yourself you know and you're just you you, Mm -hmm. you, part of really falling in love is that connection it's how you sort of surrender some of your superpowers over to the other people and that's why that trust there that's so important but this is a there's no trust earned in this relationship whatsoever, and yet he can't help himself. He's in love with her and wants to make it work. And because of that, as a lawman who has to be ruthless, he becomes extremely compromised, and it's about how that works out. It's about love and friendship and loyalty and what those things mean. And I really, really like it. And I, again, Renee, this part, people really do hate her in it. I've read, like, not just online critics, but real critics say I that's just a it's character assassination or whatever, but it isn't. You know, mm-hmm. it isn't. Try and see that person try and see that person for what she is and try and understand why she might be the way she is. And you know, and especially in the world that she lives in. And it's there's this great scene where they rescue her from a bunch of uh, Apaches or something. <laughs> they're sitting around the fire and he's 
Ed's sort of disgusted with her or whatever, and she, she to get back in his good graces, she tell makes up this story about how Vigo's character started hitting on her and grabbing at her and stuff. It's like the exact opposite actually happened. Yeah. And they wait. <laughs> Two of them, total cowboys. They just patiently wait for this long, stupid, obviously untrue story to end. And then uh, and Vigo says... Uh, that did not happen. <laughs> I, I, he goes, no, I did not do that. And and what's what's Vigo's name in it? Uh, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, sorry. It. I. Sorry. It, it makes uh, Everett, Everett. Everett. Everett Hitch. Yeah, I did. He goes, I did not do that. And then and then Ed Harris says, no, Everett didn't do that. <laughs> and she goes, you're gonna take his word over mine. And he goes. Yeah, that's about the size of it. <laughs> but love it. he doesn't he doesn't fall out of love with her. That's the thing. And it's so it's problematic. It's great. Uh Irons is great and at the town council is played by like Timothy Spall and this whole rogues gallery of great western slash British character actors. Mm-hmm. Um is it Lance Henriksen and Adam Nelson that show up? Two James yep. Cameron alums. They're great together as these brothers who are kind of the only guys that are on uh, Ed and Vigo's level, you know, and so are quite a threat to them. It's a good movie. Appaloosa I really, really liked, but you just you do have to understand that it's a bait and switch. It really does switch. The meaning of the story and the meaning of everything changes, and you got to kind of cope with that. But I loved it. Very cool. Uh, all right, next up is uh, we're going to go back down under. Uh, to uh, to see prop the proposition. Yeah, by directed by John Hillcoat and um, written by Nick Cave of all people. Yep. Uh, this is a story about a group of brothers in the outback who are are the Charlie um, Burns gang. Yeah, where the younger brother does something dumb and gets caught, and they they uh, they use th- that to blackmail the middle brother, played by Guy Pierce to go kill his older brother or his baby brother is going to be killed. That's the proposition. Mm-hmm. Complicated. Danny Houston plays the older brother, I believe. Yes. that is. Um, and it also has this, it's this, this is, there's this, the settling of the outback and the outback as a, as a stand in for the old West. There's a, uh, there's this, there's this sort of side story with, um, What's his face? Faramir. I can't remember his name. Australian actor. Uh, is that Ray Winstone? No, no that's Ray not Win- Ray Winstone. He's the older guy. Yeah. Um, 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 the um, older, more rotund fellow. John Hurt is also in John it, Hurt, so it's got a great yeah. cast. Um, he should be there somewhere near the top. He's a pretty big star. He was in Three Hundred. He was in Van Helsing. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, so we've got Pierce, Danny Houston, uh, David... Uh, David Wenham, thank David you. David Wenham, yeah. David I just Wenham. needed you to start me yes, off, yes, thanks. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, David Wenham's an actor that I really, really like. So he, uh, and he's, he's again, he plays the... He's very much like the Jack Davenport. You know, they hired the good-looking, heroic guy to play this sort of compromised, problematic fellow, given what his surroundings are and his ambitions are. Mm-hmm. Proposition's a good film. It's good. It's a dark movie. It really is just kind of what we said. There's more to it than that. There is not a lot of. There is no conventional heroics in it, and there's no real satisfying shootouts. the The film 
doesn't want you to feel satisfied by its story and it goes out of its way not to. That's what's brave about it. These days, there's a handful of these, a bunch of them on this list that we talked about that take a similar path. But this was the first film I'd seen in some time with these sorts of trappings that just showed you the gross, harsh, brutal reality of it in a way that didn't pay off dramatically in even like an unforgiven sort of way. Because even that film, you still... The guy still gets liquored up. He still goes in there and gets revenge for his friend. And you still feel sort of a relief and happiness at that, no matter how horrific it is. This film just is, there's no way that this kind of story can turn out well. And of course it doesn't, but it, there's a lot of surprises, interpersonal surprises along the way as well. Sure. It's Guy Pierce's favorite film he's ever made. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, you know. One th- one thing that you should never do is never turn your back on the past, and uh, that leads us to <laughs> Seraphim Falls. And this might be the most satisfying of this group and on a different level. This film is metaphysical almost. It's hard. It, this is such a straightforward story. Pierce mm-hmm. Brosnan plays a northern soldier who during the Civil War was present for an atrocity where Liam Neeson's character, a Southerner, loses everything. And Liam Neeson's character is chasing Brosnan's character. He'll chase him anywhere. He'll chase mm-hmm. him around the world and back. He'll chase him to the moon. He's chasing him and he's hunting him and he will kill him. And that's the simple, straightforward drive of the thing. And yet there's not really, Brosnan's not a bad guy per se. There's no conventional bad guy. There's just this awfulness and this sort of revenge mission that sprung out of it. Liam Neeson's gang uh, includes Ed Lauder and who else? A bunch of really good actors. Um, Ed Lauder is one of my favorites and he's great in it. Is Wincott in this too? Yes, he is. Yeah, he's one of them. So, in, in, in the more conventional Wincott's a psycho who has to be reckoned with sort of role. Uh, Angelica Houston plays a character in it who may or may not be the actual devil. So it's 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 great. It's got lots of action. It's got lots of non-shootout survival wilderness action, you know, which is fantastic. It's gorgeously shot, I believe, in almost entirely in New Mexico. Um, and it takes... It takes full advantage of the extremes of the New Mexico landscape. You know, the the snow and the woods and the rolling rivers and then the practically barren desert. And oh, everything. John Toll. John Toll shot this film. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I believe it. John Toll waiting around to do a Western. It's a stunningly shot film, as you can imagine, with mm-hmm. him at, at, behind the lens. Um, and just the two sort of middle-aged guys in this battle, like there's just something really amazing about that. And, and like I said, there's something more to it. There's something metaphysical about it. They're fighting kind of for more than just their, what their issues are between each other. There's this sort of soul of America thing. There's a very much an angel and demon sort of aspect to it. I don't want to sell it as like a supernatural movie. It isn't that at all, but it's. Every time you think they they might come to some sort of reckoning that doesn't involve one killing the other, some sort of thing intervenes and keeps the fight going, you know, and you and 
it, it it's a really powerful, really beautiful, very exciting movie, Seraphim Falls. So if you love westerns, particularly if you love the the like I say, not so much the a Stranger Comes to Town westerns, but those survival in the in the wilderness films. It's, it's a really really good one okay. with a couple of top notch stars who are really into it. Neeson yeah. and and Brosnan are in. They know they're in kind of a B movie western, but they're just bringing it all. It, it's awesome. Because you know way. what? Because they probably have been waiting for a chance to do a western, and they're loving it. <laughs> they're loving getting yeah. to play. Yeah, getting to play. You know, cowboys. Yeah, and the two. I think it's two brothers or two people that directed it. I can't remember who. Uh, yes, it it's, is. It's a team um, direction, and, and it's one of their first films. Yeah. So they're uh, also well, living. It's it's. Uh, it's uh, David von uh, Anken is credited, mm-hmm. um, but it's like written by. Uh, well, let's see. David von Anken. Um, you don't know any of these people, so it's not important. Yeah. Anyway, but in a lot of ways, that, yeah. I don't know that this is the best movie on this list either, but it's a good, it's the oldest, and it's a good one to try, which is why I saved it for last because. I find it hard to believe that people could not be into this one. It's really, really strong storytelling, strong visual storytelling, very little talking. Right. These, cause these guys are in scenes together. You could say, but they don't have much interaction with each other other than the ones running away from the other one or vice versa. It's, you know, it's pretty cool film. I dig it. Well, very cool. All right. Well, la- ladies and gentlemen, that is going to wrap it up for our Indie Western Roundup! And don't say we held anything back, because Natalie Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor did a Western together after their Star Wars movies called Jane Got a Gun. Uh, Robert Pattinson and Mia Zakowska? Close. That's not right either, but I'm getting closer. Vashikovsky. Vashikovsky. They actually did end up doing a Western together called Damsel. Uh, which is great. So there's a whole bunch of these. Uh, Michael Fassbender did a Western called something West, uh, something with yeah. West in the title. So I left a bunch off because they're not quite as good, even though they're interesting too in their own way. The Fassbender, but, uh, the Fassbender one was called <laughs> West. It was called Slow West. Thank you for that <laughs> pause and the excitement where I could actually remember the name of the film. Um, um my point is, there's a whole bunch of these. There's another evil preacher where Ed Harris plays the evil preacher called Sweetwater. Oh yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. it's oh, that's a feminist western. That's one where the woman of the town's the only one with any balls to go up against the guy. You know, so that there's a lot of these types of films. I do think they say something about us. I do think they're interesting. I do think they're exciting. There's a lot to like about them. So that's why I'm bringing them up again, and probably for the last time since we're going to call this the definitive take on. Sure. modern westerns of the aughts and teens well it is a roundup <laughs> all right so <laughs> let's move on uh we got time for just a couple but let's get some hot takes 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 all right, so uh, the first hot take. It's one of my favorite. Uh, I, I don't know why I like this Twitter handle uh, as much as I do, but it's <laughs> Angela Merkin. 
<laughs> Angela Merkin says, your opinion on movies is worthless unless you have seen at least 10 feature-length silent films. That's the hot take. Sure. Sure. I'm sitting here going, six, seven, trying yeah, to like, get to 10. I think I think you know I, I think just taking that film class that we took in college uh, with uh, yeah. Ted Morris means that we've seen a we've seen enough to say that yeah. we've qualified for that. And if I qualify for it, then I'm happily to happy to disqualify everybody else. Boom! Every time. Well, so I agree with me. that hot take, Angela. Totally. Um, Angela Merkin also says people who call them films are classist. I. I, I I admit I don't call them films a lot. I find myself doing it when I'm hyping the show or writing the copy for mm -hmm. the show because I just try and mix up the things we call them, movies, yeah. stories, films, just to have more than one word to use. I don't like repeating yeah. the same words over and over again. But it's not called the film show with Joel Ryan. It's called it's the movie true. show. You know, so I get what – I don't agree with that, but I get what you're saying if you repeat the term film enough times when you're talking about films, you do sound like a bit of a douche. So we, we attempt not to do that on the show. Oh, Angela. Yeah. Thank you, Angela Merkin. Thanks, Angela. Um, all right. Another, uh, this person, uh, Jeff Johnston, um, uh, he uh, writes, Goodfellas is awful. Just a corny as hell bad movie that starts by fetishizing gangsters literally and then spends the rest of it, rest of its running time, performatively pretending to feel bad for doing so. You, man, Jeff, you've put me in the awkward position of having to defend Goodfellas, which I don't really <laughs> like, I have to say. That said... Despite not liking and enjoying and finding what you say about Goodfellas to have a lot of truth to it, it's not. It's you can't just dismiss it as garbage. That's incorrect. It's extremely accomplished film with all kinds of kind of amazing cinema moments in it. And as time goes by, you can I only appreciate those things more. At the same time, yes, even at the time, it was my least favorite of the four or five awesome gangster movies of 1990. Mm. Um, it's partly is because it real reveals a truly unpleasant seedy, difficult side of the lifestyle in a way that the other films avoid that. I, there's certainly consequences for being a gangster in Godfather three. Um, definitely everything goes to pot and state of grace. We talked about that before. Mm -hmm. um, Miller's Crossing is little more than a gangster fantasy. As perfect as it is, it's a bit of a gangster fantasy. It's, it doesn't right. hold itself to any sort of truth-telling standard the way Goodfellas does. And Goodfellas deserves the credit for doing that, to make it queasy, to, make, to have the ending feel like you're high on cocaine and exhausted and just want the world to end. Like, it... It puts you through those paces. It does glorify gangster life in a time when it was glorified, and it shows what it's like to live long enough at a time when it is not, and that's unpleasant. From a movie standpoint, you don't like watching the romanticized world early in that film disappear before your eyes. It's sad and frustrating, but it's not a... It's not a terrible movie. It's quotable. It's enjoyable. We 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 talked about it in multiple episodes because it's a significant film. 
it, it, the extended takes are kind of amazing and magical in their way. Some of the dialogue is quotable and just still to this day uh, stunning. It has a fantastically undercooked Robert De Niro performance uh, alongside an impossibly over-ripened Joe Pesci performance. <laughs> um, Ray Liotta's never very likable leading man, but that's what's great about him because when you need a leading man that's not terribly likable, he he's going to play he's going to play that. He's going to give you the truth of that and he gets to that in the film. So, you know, I like Goodfellas. I don't love it. I don't rate it super highly and I don't enjoy it as much as, you know, other conventional film fans do, and I catch a lot of heat because of that, but yeah. I I don't hate it, and I still argue it's probably better than Dances with Wolves. Yeah, that's uh, that's ooh, that's a good call. That, that, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the I mean, maybe, that, I think, we don't talk about these other movies when we talk. The debate is always Goodfellas and Dances with Wolves, and yeah. if those are the two I had to vote for as an Oscar member, maybe in 1990 when I was whatever I was 17, I would have voted for you know Dances with Wolves. But as I've matured. That movie seems like a sort of overlong little simplistic morality tale in a way that Goodfellas is far more complex and surprising and interesting. So, you know. Very cool. Lo- that's a um, long answer to that statement. No, but well, that's, that's... Normally, I'm, it, usually you put me and four other film fans in a room <laughs> and you will get... You, you, I'll be the one that hates... <laughs> Goodfellas. <laughs> so I'm not used to being the one having to defend it. You put me in a right. weird spot. Good for you. That's a good question. Good um, hot take. Uh, all right. Now, uh, in order to ask this next hot, t- or in order to do this next hot take, I got to ask: Did you see Kong versus Godzilla? No, not yet. Okay, then I can't. I'm. I'm. I'll, I'll skip it. And wait. Hey, ask it and see. Well, because it deals with the ending, though. Oh, um, okay. um, here's what. Okay, so William, uh, you know, uh, William Bibiani, who's uh, uh, a um, reviewer, I think for IGN, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he's a he's a reviewer. Uh, th- this is uh, a hot take he had. People who hate movies for being political are. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. This is not an exact quote, but I'm paraphrasing a much longer. Uh, uh, thread that he had on twitter at mm-hmm. one point people who hate movies for being too pol- for being political are actually just nostalgic for the time before they were political movies have always been political they have always been yeah so yes and no this is a diff. we try and be remain as unpolitical as we can on the show right. obviously we both have our political passions and points of view um I, I don't know how to say that. Like people are nostalgic for when movies weren't political or when they didn't see the politics in movies or whatever. Like I, I do get that. I even can maybe feel that way sometimes. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. what I don't like, and not to talk, not to switch to a different topic, but our buddy um, Brett Favre went did a went a, did a phone interview with somebody some one of the big sports things and he said and he this is how he came at the subject which I really hated and I basically hate the point he's making and I'll explain why but he said people keep telling me the fans keep telling me you know all this people are telling me something I think and now I'm going to tell it mm-hmm. to you under this context but people keep saying they don't like football anymore because it's too political um. First of all, 
you know, let's just skip first, second, third of all. Let's skip right to the gut of this thing. Fourth of all, the only reason the people are telling you that it's too political is because black people are being political now. Because yeah. every time you march out the flag, sing the national anthem, thank the troops, ad nauseum, the things that we've been doing for decades, it's been political. Only time that people thought it got too political was when somebody had the nerve to kneel for the national anthem. And what I thought, we won't get into the deets of that, but what which I thought, and which a lot of us think was a pretty respectful form of protest. A form of protest that he was told to do by a one of those soldiers that we all support, one of those troops. That's what they do at, or often will do at, uh, you know, fallen the funerals of fallen mm -hmm. comrades. Uh, the guy in question who was kneeling for the national anthem he was started out by protesting America as it was at the time by sitting on the bench. That was a bad look, and he was asked why he was doing that, and he said, "Well, because this is these are the things that are happening in the world. And I just, you know, it's hard for mm -hmm. me to get geared up or whatever to." to celebrate all that when we're so wounded as a nation. And once this soldier heard that, he pulled him aside and said, hey, you know, if you really want to do yeah, this they, thing they right, this is what yeah, we they, do. You should do this. None of that context matters anymore. But that's the, the what's important is that that's the too political that people are talking about. Right. It's not my politics, it's, so it's too political. And that's without reading into what his argument, what he's saying, but it, it's very similar thing. First of all, what's too political? Well, I haven't seen any, how, what was Kong versus Godzilla political? Was the, was Wonder Woman 1984 political? What, I mean, what are you mm. even talking about? All these giant was, uh, you know, the last Skywalker too political for you? I mean, what are you talking about? The films that are out there aren't political at all. Revenge of the Sith was more political than The Force Awakens was. Here's what I would say. Here's what I, I will say going back. Uh, people who people will say that uh, The Last Skywalker and, in fact, the whole uh, third trilogy um, was too political in the fact that they made... Uh, a woman, the main character, and um, and the, the like, one of the main secondary characters was a black man, and even like our rogue so it, because it was diverse, it was politically correct, and therefore correct. can be dismissed. And therefore, was political, and therefore was like, why are you doing this? Why can't it just be? You know, you know I don't want to dismiss guys. a full like thirty six and a half percent of the nation, but honestly, if you feel that way, if you can't take an Asian woman having a major role in a Hollywood movie. You know, you're, what possible opinion could you have about anything else in the world that anybody would want to listen to? That's just absurd. And I, I hate to draw that, a line yeah. and be political, but it sounds like you're just miffed that it, it that that the art reflects the world to a certain degree. And I'll tell you, it still doesn't. But at least it's any noble attempt to try and make it reflect the world a little bit better. Right. You know, I think that's frustrating. I think it's a bummer that, you know, uh, that it's been decided now that uh, like a, a sort of straight woman can't play a male transvestite in a movie. I think that's too bad. That's one less movie about a male transvestite that you're going to get as a result of your 
orthodoxy in that way. But those are all things we can talk about and work around. But mm -hmm. I just don't want a woman who has talent or a character that has like special abilities to be in a film that I watch. Like just you got to get over yourself, man. Just look right. around the world. Do you do you know any talented, awesome women whose stories are cool? This that's that's how things are. Yeah. But just get used to it because it's not that that's not changing. That's not even political to me. I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If that's what you think is political, then you're beyond help. I would agree with that. But if what you really think is political is it's not like I disagree with it. It's not my politics or suddenly some other uncomfortable politics is latched on to something that was always political in a way that I was comfortable with. I mean, okay, I get that. There's lots of politics I'm not comfortable with that I've been confronted for a number of years with as well. And I, I get riled up about that and speak out about that. But it, it, I, it's like Joel said, it's always been political and mm -hmm. you can't wax nostalgic for a time where the racial politics or the sexual politics were simpler. There, in no way were those times better from a racial politics or sexual politics standpoint. Indeed, our active sort of cell phone lives, you know, have revealed the reality has always been there. Yeah. You know, while our movies were taking it easy on 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 certain things during a certain era, we've seen that 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 hatred, that resentment, that's always been there, and it's worse than ever. It's worse than ever. So, yeah. how do you not make movies about that? How do you not tell the stories of that? I don't see how. How do you not make the big blockbuster your stories at least to some tiny degree reflect some of those ideas without them being giant empty vessels? And if all you want is a giant, empty, stupid movie, then, hey, I don't feel bad for you because congrats. You got tons of those going on, too. <laughs> so there you go. That's me being it. political. I don't know what well, to say. I love it. Well, I, you know, that's that's not necessarily the direction, I, but I love it because it's true. And, you know, we and if and if, if we're going to get knocked for being too political, I stand by what what we are saying there. Um, um, all right. So uh, next week, let's uh, let me get this going here. Next week, okay, there we go. <coughs> next week, we are kicking off a couple weeks of discussion on one of our favorite miniseries movie entities. It's uh, in our franchise. The V miniseries. V the original miniseries and V the final battle. Double yep. deep dives. Yep. Coming in Double a week. Deep. Yep. We will uh, we will be tackling these with, of course, a uh, good friend of the show and frequent guest, Michael. And V uh, fanatic. Yes, and very much a V fanatic. Um, <laughs> it would be good to and, have on board. Yep. So uh, we will be discussing that. And uh, yes, yeah, so we hope that you will join us next week and the week after that. Um, and uh, other than that, you can reach out to us, of course, at the Movie Show with Joel and Ryan Facebook page at Ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter and Instagram and on YouTube at the uh, Movie Show with Joel and Ryan YouTube page, which if you are watching this, you're there. Hit subscribe. Like you're it. Already you're the already there. The button is like right there. It's right there. Smash on it. Or it's um, probably kind of over there. 
Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joe and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.